Welcome to Fintech Impact. This podcast is an exploration of the financial technology world, interviewing different fintech entrepreneurs about what they do, their story, and what their impact is on consumers, incumbents, and the industry as a whole. Here's your host, award-winning financial planner, university lecturer, and writer, Jason Pereira. Hello, and welcome to Fintech Impact. I'm your host, Jason Pereira. Today on the show, I have Richard Arundel. Richard is the general manager for North America for Currency Cloud. Currency Cloud is a company that's tackling the problem of international exchange online through a series of APIs that allows customers to develop their own solutions for how they're going to transfer money. And with that, here is Richard. Hello, Richard. Hi, how you doing? Thanks for taking the time today. No worries. Good to be on. Good. So, Richard Arundel, um, sorry, did I get that right? More or less, I've, I've heard very, I've heard various iterations. It's uh, Richard My Arundel. Apologies. Arundel. That's okay. Okay. And you, and you just told me a minute ago. Okay. So Richard Arundel, <laughs> I screwed it up again. Tell us about Currency Cloud. So Currency Clouds are effectively a technology-led cross-border payments platform. So we offer a, a payment software um, that allows companies to automate, optimize, optimize their international uh, payments processes. Now, so we believe that sending a cross-border payment really shouldn't be as complex and, and costly as it traditionally has been. Right, so you generally have to deal with kind of compliance and regulation, corresponding banking networks, kind of the the expensive opaque kind of foreign exchange conversion, especially in this kind of, kind of global e-commerce world we live in. So what we've done is we've we've distilled these complexities into kind of simple, easy to use components. As like I said, we're we're a technology driven company, so these components are all delivered via kind of APIs. Now, if you kind of put that into context in terms of the problem we're solving. If you, the companies need to send cross-border payments for a bunch of reasons, maybe payroll, trade finance, whatever it might be. Um, and as I said, that, that sounds like it should be simple, but increasingly. Many things that are complicated do sound simple. Many, it, it should be right. I mean, as a consumer, it's really easy. Yeah, as yeah. a consumer, if you, there's so many kind of app driven kind of payments options out there, but from a business point of view, it's really complex. And if you don't have the experience kind of dealing with cross-border payments, various banking partners, then you've got all the kind of resource and support behind that around kind of keying in payments, checking bank details are okay. If I'm sending it to Europe, you know, what, what's an IBAN number? If I'm sending it to Australia, what do they do? Um, so it's, it's, it creates kind of real inefficiencies within a business. And I think what it does is traditionally takes away focus from, from companies' kind of core values and core process. So, so we do kind of that legwork so they don't have to, basically. Excellent. So tell me about your story and what drove you to start Currency Cloud. So it takes me back. So Currency Cloud, we became Currency Cloud in 2012, but we were actually born out of a, an FX company, an FX brokerage company called FX Capital Group, which we set up kind of end of 2008, early 2009. And you know, casting memory back to kind of 2008, a great time to set up kind of a Your timing was fantastic. It was been all kinds of money flowing across the world at that time. Yeah, it was, it was <laughs> interesting. interesting time. But, but this was a kind of, I guess, a pivotal moment. And if you look back, a really pivotal moment in the age of fintech. Because when we set the business up, I mean, the iPad wasn't even invented. I think that came out in like the, the following months. But, and well, the iPhone the was just shortly around there, right? It was like 2008. Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's, I've had three children since then, so my memory fades. But so the way people were conducting business was very different. And I think we saw this, I guess, niche in the market to say, listen, that traditionally a lot of these payments were done over the phone. 
everything was opaque from the, the, the cost of the payment, the cost of the, the foreign exchange conversion. So we kind of set the business up. And in the early days, we were quite kind of FX focused. And we thought, actually, we could present to our customers an online way of doing kind of your overseas FX transaction. And a couple of years went by. And then we kind of realized, actually, that the route to market for us was to service other fintech companies or other companies who were better at servicing end customers than we were. We were still small quite, uh, back then. So we kind of merged into this actually this tech-driven company. And rather than just looking at it as a, an FX company, it's a, really a, a payments company. So kind of a, a payments company driven by technology. And we realized that we could be the ones, we could be the kind of the engine and the platform behind the really cool, smart fintech companies that had these really awesome, unique kind of digital experiences they were putting out to market. So we, we raised our... First round of uh, proper funding, Series A in 2012, became Currency Cloud, brought our, our now CEO on. And then it's kind of manifested from there. Really. You know, now we're, we're up to about 160 people. We're still headquartered in London. I have an office here in New York, which I moved over here about six months ago. Um, you that? Was that a volunteer thing? It was a volunteer, actually. It was, it was kind of, <laughs> I had the conversation with my, my CEO around this. And, you know, we came out to the US in late 2014. But I think, like all good global businesses, we, we kind of put a couple of people in a WeWork office and said, you know, go and figure it out. Um, <laughs> on the frontier, and, yes. Yeah, and, and, and can that kind of, it's, we'll, we'll come back onto that later, actually, because there's a, a real difference, I think, between kind of our, the EMEA offering and, and the US offering and, and the appetite in the industry. But yeah, so we, we as I said, headquarters in London, offices in the US, we're going to expand into Asia probably late this year, early next year. So it's been an interesting journey. I mean, currently, like itself, we're in our sixth year, but, you know, the, the actual company itself is about nine years old. And it all really came about around, listen, there must be an easier way to send payments. People were challenging the, I guess, the cost side of things. And we had a, a bunch of kind of kind of money services businesses or FX companies who were kind of challenging the, I guess, the banking costs. But for us, it was more around, I guess, the user experience of doing stuff. And it takes me back when I, when I look at our business and, and really what we, or how I view this world, if you just look at a Everything is now API driven. If you look at your smartphone, if I want to order a taxi, you know, Uber or Lyft or something, I, I just do that from my phone. My expectation is that I can see where that, that taxi is. I can get in it. I can pay through that application and it's all done kind of seamlessly in this really unique, cool digital way. But the B2B payments world is far from that. And so I guess we looked at it as, well, why not? I mean, this is, this is really just technology that's driving this. So why can't you translate that from a consumer-facing world into the business world? So is your is your model like something akin to, say, Braintree, but for foreign exchange? I mean, not really. I mean, I, I guess from our point of view... Not even close, okay. I, around the Braintree, I, I kind of look at it, and I, I've said this before, it's, I guess it's almost like Intel. The, the old word, if you see this Intel, what do they actually do? I see them everywhere. I see them all the computers. But what do they actually do? Well, I'm actually using this computer, but there's an Intel inside kind of logo. So we're, I guess, the the engine or the infrastructure behind supporting kind of these businesses. So I guess that's how I would picture. Excellent. So you're you're clearly a B two B play. You're not a B two C play. Any large uh, customers you can tell us about? Yeah, I'm sure I could tell you about some customers. I guess the, the ones that we look at kind of specific segments, and it might be worthwhile kind of looking at the, the kind of people that we we speak to. I mean, think. From um, a U.S. perspective, we have some kind of really interesting customers servicing kind of the, the gig economy or the marketplace world. So we have people like uh, Hacker One is actually a really interesting customer I quite like. So Hacker One, uh, a really cool company, they 
effectively provide or they source ethical hackers for businesses. So if you want to go and test your cybersecurity, you go through the HackerOne marketplace to find these kind of hackers all over the world. And then we help them make payments back to these hackers. You then have people coming called GoLance, there's, uh, who again are kind of marketplace, gig economy, kind of freelance marketplace world. Um, we help a customer called AirHelp, which is actually a really interesting company because these are the guys that if your flights are ever been delayed, these guys help you go and recover uh, some costs for that flight. So whenever I speak to people about that, they, they jot their name down and you just go and log on to AirHelp and it kind of searches all your, your historical bookings. And if you're lucky, you get a few hundred dollars back. But again, you know, from their point of view, they're yeah, making the yeah. yeah, API-driven thousands of payments they need to make back to uh, their customers. And you know, in the absence of technology, they would really struggle to scale their business. But we also deal with banks. We've got a, um, a really interesting bank up in, up in Boston, Brookline Bank. And the banking play is quite interesting. And it's a really interesting market for us because I think from a banking perspective, these guys want to be able to offer their customers a, a, a rich kind of digital experience. They get that the world is going this way. But the problem with banks is a bunch of red tape within their own organizations. So getting something to market is quite, is quite slow. But by partnering some, with someone like Currency Cloud, we can help them get to market much quicker. And then kind of we view these as kind of this kind of land and expand model of they, they, we have an off the shelf kind of white label platform that they can go and build. So they don't have to disrupt any of their kind of current processes. And then over time, they can then look to our APIs. We have, you know, we pitch our APIs as almost like these building blocks. So over time, they can gradually, I guess, integrate into their other systems, into their core systems, so they can, you know, first, let's go to market, let's kind of trial this with our customers, make sure it's good, make sure it's fit for purpose, and then integrate by the use of API so we can scale and put this into our into our core business. And if you go then, if I go to the other side of the Atlantic, there's, there's customers like Travelex, we deal with Standard Bank of South Africa, we deal with Hyundai if we go even further east. So there's some quite interesting names, and it's all around kind of building these partnerships in kind of really cool ways. So you're finding particular sectors of the economy are, are in need of this more than others? Like, is, is, you mentioned the number of banks, so they're, I mean, they're the traditional money movers. But, uh, you know, the example you gave of uh, that hacker company, you know, I look at the, the ever-growing trend in services of placing people, people working all throughout the world uh, in their home domicile and basically remotely working for companies all over the world. I mean, it seems like a perfect pairing for you guys. Are you seeing, like, is, is it traditional avenues you're seeing more business out of? Is it manufacturing? Where is it coming from? So it's a bit of both. And, and I'm doing a lot of work at the moment in kind of redefining our strategy from a North American perspective. So traditionally in, from EMEA, we dealt with a number of kind of regulated payment firms from banks to kind of FX companies to kind of prepaid cards um, the kind of digital challenger banks now are big in, in kind of Europe and, and the UK. So these guys had a traditional mean. They were servicing customers who yeah, they were taking business away from the banks. And um, this was a, a different offering. You have kind of these this new age banking offering for SMEs. And I guess in UK and Europe, cross-border is just a, another way of life. But I think in, in North America, we're having to think about it slightly differently because you have got these traditional players. But I guess the market is is mainly served by the six or seven thousand banks and credit unions over here, which is very different to Europe, where you have a, a smaller number of kind of key players. <laughs> I'm in um, Canada. Trust me, I'm used to a small number of key players. <laughs> okay, <laughs> so yeah, so the, the market is again. In, yeah, it's six banks, but and, and 
that's interesting because then you have you have you do have a couple of these kind of FX companies who are saying actually you know we can go and take on these six banks because it shouldn't be a monopoly. Um, you don't have as many of those over here in the US. So I think you know a really interesting marketplace or a, a vertical for us is this kind of marketplace world, the marketplace world that's you know servicing these people all around the world, making payments all around the world. And I guess traditionally, these marketplaces or, or the way to service, the way to make payments here has been either through the banks or through some of these you know, kind of incumbent payment services like PayPal. But the issue and, and what these, the challenge that they're trying to face, or that they're trying to overcome, sorry, is, well, hang on, if, if I'm giving up the payments process to these banks or to these other third-party people, um, I lose complete control over... A, my customer experience, and B, the cost for the customer, which also impacts their revenue because they're not participating in that. So the way we look at it is, well, listen, by using someone like us and by embedding APIs into your current process, you can not only drive down costs for your customer, but you can completely control the customer experience. So within the same app, within your website, within your environment, you can service the customer from your core business, but also make the payment. Now, so again, you're going I mean, back. The, just, just to interject there, I mean, the, the, the conventional model for online payments, I mean, you look at the consumer facing stuff, you're looking at like 2.75% per transaction on something like a, like a Stripe or a, um, or a Square. So how is it you're monetizing? Are you basically charging a lower fee? Are you charging just for the technology? Like, how is it they're controlling the cost? So from our point of view, I mean, we have a kind of SaaS based way of pricing, like a lot of people do. Now, you know, we will charge a small percentage based on the flow. But then what we do, I think the key thing is we then say to our customers, you can then go and control everything above that. So if this is a margin play for you, then you can say, you know what, the, the market value here is, say, 2.75%, 3%, whatever it is. So if you want to mark that customer up and, and keep that money for yourself rather than lining someone else's pockets, then great. If your core business is not actually monetizing the payment side of things, you can then just drive that cost down for the customer. So back to the HackerOne example about these you know, ethical hackers around the world. If you look at something like PayPal, for cross-border payment involving a, a foreign exchange conversion, it's not uncommon for kind of 6 or 7% to be taken out of the money. <sighs> now, bearing in mind, this is someone's salary. So if you or I got paid and there was a line on there saying kind of 6% conversion because we use a, somebody based in india to, to process this and there's conversion from indian rupee back to canadian dollars or us dollars we might have something to say about it so so why is it acceptable for businesses to do that and and, and that's really it, it's lack of options and it, it's lack of options it's a uh, you know what they could do they yes they could probably go to their their banking provider strike up a better relationship and drive that cost down but that's not a scalable solution especially if they're processing kind of mass payments as these guys are. It's thousands of payments a month. So why can't we give them the option to, to bring that in-house, control that? They can also then choose, because whilst we're about cross-border payments, what a big part of that is accessing kind of the local payment network, so the ACH equivalents around the world. So if you're paying someone in in UK, for example, you don't want to necessarily send a $25 SWIFT payment or a $25 wire payment. You want to be able to send the, the ACH equivalent, which is a faster payment, which is going to cost you, you know, 25 cents. The same in Europe, the same in Australia, Poland, Scandinavia. So again, that's another kind of benefit that we're kind of helping to bring to companies making these cross-border payments. And again, that they probably haven't been able to, no, well, they certainly haven't been able to do themselves because they don't have the relationships with banks all around the world. They have their bank, their bank in, in the US or in Canada. And they think the only option is just to send this wire payment. Um, so it's interesting. I mean, it's an interesting strategy. You took your core competency of currency conversion, 
put brought it online, and then it basically are seeking to more or less disrupt the already disrupting incumbents like the Braintrees, the Squares, and the Stripes of the world by not going after 2.75%, using your core competency on the back end to essentially monetize there, not really caring about controlling the front end giving and, and solving a problem for a lot of people. Because here's the thing, as much as some of these things are very easy, a couple of lines of code inserted and suddenly collect payments, they're not cheap. And again, like you said, they don't control the experience. You're, you're kind of freeing up two of the bigger complaints I typically hear about those types of structures. So smart move. Yes, it's, it's an interesting space. And I think you know, that there is, and we talk about, and if you talk to our marketing team, this is the strap line, I guess, is kind of reimagining the way that kind of money flows through the digital economy, which is very marketing-like. And I don't like poking the marketing team, but it is a very marketing message. But actually, there is something about that in terms of, you know, ultimately, whilst we service customers who in turn service the end customer, but we are indirectly servicing the end customer, you or I who are making cross-border payments. So why should it be so expensive? Or why should it so, be so expensive for businesses and so inefficient for businesses to make these payments? And the other thing we haven't really talked about is you know, we talk about that there are companies out there who are charging 2.75% or 5%, but, but often you don't know what you're being charged because traditionally the FX conversion has been hidden. It's really opaque. No, and actually yeah, when we, and one of our kind of founding principles was transparency in what we do. So we are very transparent with our pricing to, to our customers. You know, we, we take a price, we, we use banks and you know, we take a price from our banking provider. And we simply pass that on to our, our customers and say, listen, you know, cards on the table here. This is what you're getting. It's real time access to kind of wholesale rates of exchange, fully transparent. And then the way we're going to charge you is just on your flow. So really simple. We try and keep it as, as easy as these guys to then look at how they can monetize or, or you know, save costs for their customer. Interesting. So what were the bigger challenges you faced in developing this and getting to where you are today? As a company as a whole or, or US focused? Because there's two uh, different well, actually, answers. You know what? There's just two different answers. Let's hear both of them. Okay. So I guess in the early days, it was really de defining who we are. You know, what is our value proposition? You know, you said you said one of our core competencies was currency conversion. And, you know, should we be an FX company? Is that, is that where we go to market? Is that our value proposition? So we did spend a couple of years kind of really understanding our value proposition. And I guess within that, we tried different things. So maybe our focus was too wide. We tried to deal with different things. And you asked me earlier around you know, the types of market that we can service, traditional kind of banking or, or FI routes. I think we, we spread the net too wide because you know, we, we believe that so many different people send money overseas, we can service all of them. And ultimately we can do, but we'd rather focus on kind of three or four core markets that we can go really deep into and really understand the needs uh, and service them really well. So it took us a few years to do that. And then the, the standard challenges of, a, I guess, a, an ambitious startup company around how quickly can we go and how quickly can we meet the ever-increasing demands of, of customers in terms of you know, product improvements, network expansion, currency, uh, new currencies we're offering. And I guess that's for, for me personally, that was a learning curve. You know, I'm, I'm sitting there and, and from the outside looking in, people are saying, listen, you're moving really quickly. But I guess internally you're thinking we want to move quicker because our customers want to move quicker so i guess that was one of the challenges and then the other big challenge was getting our compliance right so like everything in the payments world it's heavily regulated and compliance is is a fundamental part of what we do and i think it took us a while to understand that actually compliance is an opportunity rather than a threat to our business you know we we have an obligation 
to the industry as a whole, to our regulators, to our banks, to be you know, super compliant. We operate in this incredibly compliance-driven world. And actually, sometimes people ask me what industry you're in, and we, we have to say, actually, it's a compliance industry, and we do payments and technology as well. <laughs> but I think um, what I mean by that is you know, we have this obligation to the industry itself, banking partners, regulators, to remain compliant. And you know, ultimately, this is around you know, terrorist financing, proceeds of financial crime, and how we prevent that. And actually, how we can work with our clients and our partners to, to prevent that as well. And I think it was really understanding where we can operate, how we can operate with certain customers. Because I said, we, we have regulated customers, we have unregulated customers, we offer them a, a very similar product, but there are some compliance differences in, in how we operate and understanding where, where funds are coming from and you know, the ultimate flow of funds. So we're in a good place now, but I think you know, that, that is an ever-evolving challenge. And actually, it's no different, actually. I said there's, you know, there's two answers, and it, it's no different in the US, apart from the fact that it's all state by state rather than you know, by, uh, yeah. by, by country. Uh, so that, that's... Oh. Uh, um, yeah, just, just 50 of them makes it a problem as opposed to the number of countries in Europe. So it's, it's different. So I guess that's, that was the European challenge. And then I guess the advantage we had is, you know, as I said, when we set, we originally set the company up, you know, fintech was really just a, a buzzword. But now it's, it's, I guess, more of a, a movement and more of a thing. We were lucky enough that we were dealing with some, some really interesting customers from, from day one. And they were also startups. And now some of them have gone on to be, you know, really successful companies. I think the challenge in the US is very different because over here, I, th I think we're probably four or five years behind EMEA when it comes to kind of fintech adoption. I think that goes back to the, you know, the, I guess the banking uh, monopoly over, over the industry itself. So the challenge here is around, you know, how we partner with these banks and how we get to the end customer to really make them aware that there are there are options when they're sending funds cross-border and how we can, I guess, work with kind of non-banking providers, you know, software platforms, accounts payable, receivable platforms to kind of embed technology into their businesses so we can ultimately provide a better service, better experience and a, and a drive cost down for, for the customer. Uh, and that's going to take some time. We're starting to see, even since I've been here in the six months I've been in the US, we're starting to see a few more kind of more kind of challenger type companies coming to speak to us and looking at, at how they can service the industry. And and maybe it goes down to the fact that you know traditionally the US is still quite a, a dollar denominated thought process over here. And we're in you know certainly we're in the UK. We've always had to think about different currencies because we've got all these different trading partners. But the U.S. is, you know, there's been a, I guess, a global acceptance of sending a U.S. dollar invoice. That's absolutely fine. That's normal. As we become increasingly global and as that kind of wave hits over here and you know, the emergence of the East, et cetera, I think there is a now more of a realization you know, that maybe not be as acceptable as it once was or to remain relevant or be um, competitive in this market. We're going to have to start thinking differently. So how many countries so and currencies currency So in terms of number of countries we send payments to, we can send payments pretty much anywhere, pretty much to any kind of non-sanctioned uh, country. So more than 200 countries. So um, not North Korea. Okay, noted. Okay, no. Correct. Yeah, correct. <laughs> but again, you know, we, there are challenges with certain countries and, and even with kind of Latin America. You know, we can send money into Brazil, but we don't offer the Brazilian real. It's a very controlled currency. So we would send US dollars into Brazil. And for some companies, that's absolutely fine because they're, they're, they've got an appetite for USD. And China was like that for a while. We were sending a bunch of kind of US dollars or euros into China. 
and they have an appetite to receive US dollars or euros. But we can also offer the renminbi. We can send um, Chinese renminbi across. Um, so we operate in. So we have local payout options in kind of over thirty countries, and by that I mean your access to the local payout networks, and we have. Around kind of forty different currencies that we can actually process. We're expanding that all the time. Again, there are other providers who can offer, and banks especially. If you look at some of the big banks offering you know, all different types of currencies, but these are in jurisdictions where we don't really go into. And again, that comes to a kind of risk appetite compliance kind of world, and also the challenges around kind of sourcing local liquidity. So you know, as I said before, we operate with some of our banking providers, and they will offer kind of mainstream currencies. If we want to go and get kind of deep liquidity in kind of Africa and offer all the different types of African currencies, we would have to go and build out kind of an African、uh, banking relationship to take on that market. But it just hasn't been on our on our radar so far. So, quick question before we wrap this up: What really excites you about either your company or the opportunities you see in the marketplace, or just the general trends、uh, in the industry? I think what excites me most about our company or the industry in which we operate. Is the size of the market, the size of the opportunity? All、I、mean, the money the, in the world, but yeah, it's a pretty big market. I guess the, the specific definition there is: you know, we, we've seen a lot of our clients, for example, operate in the B two C space, and these guys have been you know, really, really successful. And they call them, you know, these these fintech unicorn,、uh, mm-hmm. billion dollar valuations, and they're in the B two C world. Now, that's a tiny, tiny market compared to the B two B world. If you look at the value of transactions, like one hundred and thirty five trillion dollar. Industry and kind of B two B, and the interesting thing there is, you know, ninety two percent of that market is controlled by traditional banking means. So, if companies like Currency Cloud could you know, take away or chip away at that and take a couple of percent here or there, it's an incredible opportunity for us. And I think also what excited about is it's still new. And if if you go back to kind of the marketing message and and the kind of the vision for the company in terms of reimagining how money is moving, you know, for for the end customers here, for the businesses. You know, just imagine a world where B two B payments and the way people process them kind of catches up with this on demand kind of consumer driven world and, and the app world. I think that for me is is the interesting stuff. It's, it's constantly moving. It's constantly improving. You know, this is around customer experience. This is around driving costs down. This is around access to these networks, which is ultimately just going to drive costs down you know, unilaterally across the the global economy for for the end consumer. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I you know, I, I look at the challenges facing every major bank now. I mean, there isn't a single line of business that isn't being attacked by multiple players in every tech space. Everything, you know, the bread and butter of lending, investments, you know, some some of them are insurance as well, deposit taking, currency transactions. Man, it's、um, you're right. You know, it's a big market. It's controlled by even you know, even there's a lot of you know the the number of players in the U.S. number in the thousands on a global scale. The number of companies involved are is actually relatively small based on the total number of transactions they handle, and it's going to be a different world going forward with all this with all the disruption in this space. Yeah, I think that it's a good point there because you know we we often get asked the question around you know are the, are the banks scared of this or you know you're really taking on the banks and you know we compete for business with them, but ultimately money still, still we still we have to rely on them. You know th-、yeah. this isn't a we're not involved in blockchain. This isn't around you know taking. Or changing the way money moves around the world. This is just around changing the access points to that for the end customer. So you know, whilst we might take, or companies or our clients might take some of the, I guess the FX revenue away from these guys. You know, that's tiny in proportion to to what they're making elsewhere. So there, there's a really, really interesting kind of collaboration between 
kind of banks, fintechs that can ultimately, if these guys are serious about, you know, what we want to do is create this better world for kind of for SMEs and for consumers, then you know, banks, it takes so long for them to kind of launch stuff. And do they really have the appetite? They have these innovation labs, a lot of them, but do they really have the appetite or even expertise to build these kind of rich um, user experiences for the end customer? Probably not. But the way they can do that and offer that is just through collaboration and partnership. Yeah, I think there's a number of areas that they're still going to be very able to compete or provide value. I just think that their omnibus opportunity to create value in every area is kind of falling up is going to fall away. There was a really good, I'm not sure if you saw this slide deck, it was talking about the Copernican revolution in banking and how the old model was one bank did everything, but now you're getting, everybody's going to, you know, you had all these companies focusing on narrow verticals and becoming best in class and that, but they still rely on banking on the back end like you guys do, because either it's an infrastructure issue or it's a, even bricks and mortar issue, just the ability to have the distribution network and, you know, call it the bricks and mortar or, or or even bank machines. Those are things that are, the, that's their tactical advantage, but everything else is just falling away. And it's just a matter of, they're going to become the plumbing in a lot of ways, just like you're becoming the plumbing. Yeah, they control the money. But in terms of kind of access, <laughs> yep. that, access to that, not, you know, I'm not going to run over to your house with cash. I'll just, you know, if I'm in the US, I'll probably send you it via kind of Venmo or something like that. But it's still moving by traditional banking means. It's just as soon as they kind of let go of the customer experience side of things and focus on what they're good at, and realize that, you know, that in this age of technology, there's so much we can do for, you know, for the consumers and for the businesses out there. And I think that's what really excites me because, you know, we, we have partnerships with banks and we're, we're speaking to banks constantly around this kind of stuff. And a lot of them are open and are kind of coming out, I guess, of the dark ages of, you know, we're a bank, we want to own this, of actually what's really important to us is our customers because they're the ones who hold the money to us. And you know, that's where we make up. Well, Richard, thank you very much for taking the time. This has been wonderful, and I'm sure it'll go over very well. So thank you. No worries, Jason. Thanks for having me on. And that was Richard Arendel of Currency Cloud. Once again, if you enjoyed this podcast, please leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever it is you get your podcasts. And with that, until next time, I'm Jason Pereira. This podcast was brought to you by Woodgate Financial, an award-winning financial planning firm catering to high net worth individuals and their families. To learn more, go to woodgate.com. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play, or find more episodes at fintechimpact.co.